We have a book at our home. It is one of those how to fix anything manuals. You maybe have one as well. If something in your house is broken or in disrepair, this manual offers a step-by-step instruction on how to fix your problem. So if your furnace is malfunctioning or a wooden chair leg comes unglued or the clothes dryer is burning holes in your clothes, you turn to this handy index in the back and you look it up and you try your best to follow the directions and solve the problem. Too many believers, I think, tend to use the Bible that way. And it's a colossal mistake. The Bible is not a how-to manual. It is not a fix-it encyclopedia to which we turn, find a few verses that address our particular concern, and then go off to follow the instructions and try to fix or maintain some spiritual aspect of our lives. Now on the shelf near our How to Fix Anything book, we have a number of classic novels. And I think that the Bible is a lot more like those. The Bible is something of an inspired epic, really. Every verse locks into the overall plot, and you cannot isolate one passage from the overarching storyline, or you err greatly. The Bible is an inspired epic. In this line, David Henderson rightly observes in his book, Culture Shift, I quote, the term biblical needs to be redefined. It cannot mean merely from somewhere within the pages of Scripture. In light of the way the Bible is written as a single fabric of thought stretching from front to back, biblical must mean in keeping with what the Bible is about. And the Bible is about God's unstoppable passion to be known and loved and served through Jesus Christ by those He has made. I think those are excellent words. We need to learn to think and to live in a truly biblical manner. And this means we need to read the Bible not as a comprehensive encyclopedia of spiritual solutions, picking a verse here and there and drawing some solution from it, but we need to read it as a story, an entire story that comes from the heart of God, a perfectly written true story that inspires us to love the Lord with all of our heart and which demonstrates to our spirit that God alone is our soul's deepest joy. I've read some of these classic works, and there's something that happens in your soul. I've read these fix-it manuals, little pieces of them, and nothing happens in your soul. God's Word is not a fix-it manual. And seeking then to read the Bible in that way, I would like for us to think biblically about material wealth this morning. We're not going to look at every reference in the Bible, and I'm not going to lead a financial seminar. I do not want to pick out a few verses so as to offer financial solutions or to fix financial problems. That's not my concern at all. In the spirit of which I've laid out these introductory remarks, what I would like to do, God helping me, is to paint in very broad strokes, very quickly, a biblical picture of material wealth and to demonstrate how our wealth fits into the story of, that is written in Revelation. And it really fits into that story. It's everywhere. If we read the Bible holistically, that is from cover to cover, 
understanding how it is integrated together, how it integrates together all of these books. If we read the Bible holistically, we cannot fail to see that the material world and personal riches are a major theme in God's revelation of Himself to man. From cover to cover, the Bible reveals truth about material wealth which locks into the overriding purpose of the Bible to inspire love and joy in our hearts toward God. I wonder if you see material things in that light. Do you view material wealth as one of God's means to nurture love in your heart for Him? Do you get excited about material wealth because you see it as a vital element of your joy in God? If we're going to see wealth as God wants us to see it, if we're going to see it as the vital part, a vital part of our relationship with Him, then we must understand material wealth in light of the overall teaching of Scripture. I will not do justice to this topic. I'll admit that up front. My goal is to make a lot of time uh, happen quickly here to, in a sense, take an overview, uh, a a plane, a bird's-eye view of the picture. So I'm not going to do it justice by any means. But in the brief moments that we have together, I would like to trace out several overarching and interlocking themes of Scripture which will help us to see wealth in such a light that our relationship with God, I trust, is warmed and aided. Here's the stakes that we drive into the wall, the hooks from which we hang our ideas. Stake number one, God as creator of the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We can start there. The Bible begins with the bold declaration, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. A theology of material wealth begins with the very first verse of the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. I think this certainly indicates that God designed the universe. No one was before God created, and thus the design and plan of the universe could only be conceived in His mind. I think that it says to us, obviously, that God made the universe. In the chaotic moments soon after God created the material world in verse 1 of chapter 1, in this yet formless, these formless elements of the universe, the Creator speaks. And He says in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. So by the word of His power, He spoke, and the universe was formed in perfect conformity to His original design. And we learn as well in Scripture that God sustains His universe. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. Christ holds the physical universe together. And someday God will purge this universe with fire. This is truth we learn outside of Genesis chapter 1, but truth that is very vital for us to understand. God will purge the universe with fire. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. So He designs it. He plans it. He ordains it. He creates it. He sustains it. And someday will purge it. It belongs to Him. As creator and designer and sustainer and future purifier of the universe, God holds title to this world. Every material thing belongs to Him. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So our principle here on this first hook is very simple. Every material thing that you are able to enjoy and every material possession to which you lay claim belongs to and comes from God, our Creator. Hook number two, man as subduer of the earth. God did not slap Adam and Eve's hands 
when they touched the material universe. It was his. But he didn't slap their hands. As a matter of fact, he put the material universe into their hands. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Genesis 1 and verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. This is really a stunning word. God could have assigned to Adam and Eve just one tree and told them to touch nothing else. He keeps one tree off of limits and He gives them everything else. God lovingly says, go into the earth and subdue it. Bring it all under control. Work it. Care for it. Play with it. Keep it in repair. Discover its hidden secrets. Mine its hidden treasures. Rule over it and all its living creatures. So by this commission, God, the creator and owner of wealth, assigns to man the joy of managing God's earth and bringing it under control. So fundamentally, we learn right in the first chapter of Genesis that we are stewards. That is, we are managers of someone else's property. In the present, I think that should certainly give us a sense of humility as we look to what God has put into our hands As we look to the future, it certainly gives us a sense of accountability. There's a day coming, a day of reckoning, because what we hold is not ours, it's His. We move to the the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17, and we see this very theme there as well. 1 Timothy 6. We'll park here just for a short moment. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17 as we think of God as creator and man as subduer of the earth, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who, and I want you to notice this carefully, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He richly provides to us everything for our enjoyment. Everything. The clothes that you wear right now are God's. The house in which you live right now is God's. The food that you have eaten this morning, sometime recently, is the Lord's. Your home, your car, your furniture, your toys, everything that you have, everything that you touch, everything that you see belongs to Him. But He, it says here, provides it for us. The Greek word means to give, to grant, to bring about for someone. He brings this about for us. He allows us to touch His universe. He allows us to work with it and to hold it. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7. Further up in the context it says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Nothing that we have here, nothing that is provided for us here is our own. As the ancient proverb put it, there are no pockets in a shroud. A shroud, a burial wrapping. There are no pockets in a shroud, or as they say today, no U-Hauls behind a hearse. Everything comes from Him. We bring nothing in, and we take nothing out. 
The history of mankind on this fair planet has been the unfolding story then of the subjugation of God's earth. There is a major stream of people who labor to subject this earth to the glory of man. And there is a smaller stream, but significant stream of people who belong to God, who are seeking to subject this earth to the glory of God. And I hope that you fit into that more narrow stream. But we are doing that, and we need to see ourselves as God's people, as bringing this world into subjection to Him, to His glory, and to His honor. It should say that this assembly of people ought to be hard workers. We should be working hard and earning personal wealth. That's a good thing. I've been going over uh, the book of Proverbs with the teens on Wednesday nights, and some time back we looked at all of these passages that talk about diligent effort, working hard, going after wealth. And it, what that is is not simply going after things as such. It is a subduing of the earth as God has commissioned us to bring it under control. And the one way that we bring the world under control is to earn wealth, which we can then use to make decisions and accomplish things for His glory. We should be hard workers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 doesn't drop out of the sky somewhere. It is part of this theme of subduing the earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. We are called there... Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will be dependent, not be dependent on anybody. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your business, work with your hands. Work hard. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-10, through 10, there were some believers... People within the assembly who claimed to know Christ who were not following Paul's instructions. There he gets a little bit more involved in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right of such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Let me stop just a moment briefly at verse 9. What he's saying is that as an apostle, I pour out my life and my energies to teach the Word of God, to proclaim the Gospel of Christ, and I have every right scripturally to be paid for that. But I chose, as you will remember, Thessalonians, I chose as an apostle not to be remunerated for my work among you. Why? Because I wanted to serve as a model for you. I wanted to lay down this pattern to say that we are to work with our hands, to accomplish our, our tasks each day, and to win our own food. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. As you go to work, go in this spirit. We are commissioned to go after our work and to bring our world into subjection. As you go after your yard, bring it into subjection. It's quite a task, isn't it? 
We should be out there in our yards if God's given you one and this is the thing that you like to do and not that you have to do this, but I think we ought to create beauty. We ought to seek to maintain order against the destructive elements of this nature. That's what we were created to do. You have a house, you have a bedroom. It's a quest to use space to your benefit, to create an environment of orderliness and beauty. You have a workspace at school, subdue it. You have a church property, subdue it. That's what we were doing yesterday as a bunch of bees in a hive here as we descended on the building to work. We gathered together to subdue the earth, to subdue this space and use this space for our benefit. By the way, Adam Miller suggested this might be the beginnings of a basketball court up here. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. That is not the case, I don't believe, but it did give me some ideas. <laughs> and by the way, I'm also sticking to this thing, so if you're wondering why I'm not using this length here, I can't move. <laughs> There's all kinds of glue down. We're, we're obviously not done, but long hours put here, and it's hard. I'm going to ask those that were here at uh, 10.30 and 11.30 last night to finish up and try to just get ready for you that were here. This place, by about 10 o'clock, was an absolute chaos, this room. But we work. We labor to bring things under control and order. Now, I know people can be what we call a neat freak and go too far, but I do think there ought to be pride in what we do in a sense of order and a sense of beauty and a sense of purpose. As you invest money, we should do it to subdue the earth, to use wealth to make a difference in this world financially. Whatever the area, God calls His people to enter the creation. He calls us to touch it, to play with it, to use its resources and bridle its secrets so as to enjoy it, 1 Timothy 6.17, and to bring it under control as a manager who labors to bring glory to God. What a biblical theme is here and how fast the time is moving. But think of Abraham. And think of what begins there in his life with the promised land. To Abraham, there is a land of promise. And then there is, after the exodus out of Egypt many years later, there is the conquest of the land to control that land and to drive out the enemies of God. Why? I would like to suggest that part of the picture is the subduing of the earth to the glory of God. And having driven out those enemies, realizing there's a lot that goes in between the lines there, but generally, having driven out the enemies of God, there is a monarchy established in the land. And that monarchy establishes the worship of Jehovah on a hill called Zion. And Solomon there builds a great temple. What is the idea? To subdue the earth in one land until God's people had created a place that epitomized the worship of God. The temple was not just some design. They didn't have this, this uh, contest. Draw all the great architects of Israel together and decide who can come up with the best design. The design of this building this really comes and descends from heaven itself, Hebrews chapter 9. It is based on the heavenly approach to God in the eternal realm. The earthly temple was patterned after that heavenly courtroom, and it ultimately pointed to the death of Jesus Christ. So as we read the Bible, we need to read it in light of these overarching themes. God created, and thus He owns everything, and He commissions man as His steward to bring this creation under control and, and to enjoy its riches. 
to the glory of God. One thing we learn of that temple of Solomon, it was a wealthy temple. It was a beautiful building, and it epitomized the worship of God. Well, obviously, this subduing of the earth, we're leaving a lot unsaid. It is a difficult task. It is not made easy because of sin. Just look at the dandelions in your yard. Is there anything like ours? It's not an easy task. There's weeds, there's thorns, there's thistles. There's hard work against a cruel universe that has fallen in sin. Or I should say, not so much cruel, but has been subjected to sin because of our sin. But not only, I want you to follow here as we put up this third peg. Not only is this process of subduing the earth hard, it is also extremely dangerous. And God knows it. Our God created a beautiful universe. If you don't know that, you are not alive. If you cannot go out into this world and look up into that blue sky or see those stars or look at the trees and the grass and see what happens in the spring and watch how this world is put together, if you cannot see that this is a beautiful universe, you're not alive. I'm glad you didn't create it. You'd have made it black and white and it'd be the most boring place in the world. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful universe. And though it's not easy to subdue, because of sin, it is quite easy to fall in love with it. God knows that it is a noble, beautiful, life-energizing endeavor to subdue the earth, but because of our fallen condition, He also knows that we can very easily fall into idolatry. We can begin to love the world that God has made and the world He has entrusted into our care that He has given to us for our enjoyment. We can take that world and we can begin to worship it and love it more than we love God. And that danger leads us to this third major theme, this peg on which we hang our thoughts. God as the Creator. Man as the subduer of the earth. But this third theme... God's people as worshipers. God's people as worshipers. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On day six of the creative week, God commissioned Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. Later, when God issued His divine law to Israel on Mount Sinai, where does He start? For you shall have no other gods before Me. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now that always gives us pause, doesn't it? When you hear God say things like that, I am a jealous God. Isn't jealousy wrong? I don't, obviously it is. And in our lives, mostly it is wrong. But I don't think that it's always wrong. And I think I can maybe illustrate that for you here. Let's consider a father. As God is our father, we consider a father who has a daughter whom he loves very much. He adores this daughter and he pays for her heart's desire to go to a private institution, a private school. He pays a lot of money. He loves his daughter. He wants to do what is right. He thinks it's a wise decision, and he sends his daughter to a private school. One day she forgets her lunch, and so he realizes it and takes his lunch and takes her lunch and goes to the school. And he walks down the corridor and comes to the room where her room is, young girl, and as he comes into the door, she is sitting on her teacher's lap. 
a young man who is stroking her hair and saying to her, you know, I'm a better daddy to you than your daddy. Now, what would you think of this father if he just, oh, excuse me, and put the lunch down on the table and kind of walked out of the door sheepishly? That a father who loves his daughter? I think if he really loves her, there will be jealousy in his heart. There will be anger in his heart. Would it be noble for him to walk away? No, I think it would be noble for him to have jealous wrath. Any dad who has any sense of genuine, loyal love would warn his daughter against such a man. And as necessary, he would intervene. Listen, if you are God's child, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you with a pure and infinite love. And knowing that He alone is your Creator and Father, that everyone else is a rival and a false God, knowing that He alone is your Father and God, knowing that He alone is your soul's rest and joy, He will not tolerate rivals in your heart. And so He issues bold commands against idolatry and goes on record to say, I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for your love because I am your father and no one else is. And he hates it when we take the gifts that he has given to us in order to increase our joy, our joy in him, and we use those gifts as idols. Here's my point on this third idea. One way that God has elected to isolate his people from the corruption of idolatry is to ordain that his people sacrifice material wealth as an act of worship. Let me say it one more time. One way that God has elected to isolate his people from the corruption of idolatry is to ordain that his people sacrifice material wealth as an act of worship. This is by no means the only way that his people are to evidence their love for him. But from the earliest chapters of Genesis, God ordained that His people lay down material wealth as a demonstration of their fidelity and devotion to Him. That they, this is crude, but in a sense that they say, look, I'm able to let go. And by letting go of this, I'm seeking to show that I love you above all things. We see that right in the beginning. Let's go to Genesis with Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5. We see this theme beginning right away in the Scriptures. Of course, there's no need for animal sacrifice if it were not for the fall, but we come to Genesis 4. We have the fall in Genesis 3, and in Genesis 4 we already see the idea of animal sacrifice, which God apparently communicated to the first people. But Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. If you're with me here, you know which peg we hang number two, uh, verse number two on. What peg is it? Man as subduer, right? That's what they're doing here. Abel keeps flocks and Cain works the soil. In the course of time, verse 3, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offspring, but on Cain and his offerings, offspring he did, offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Abel the shepherd, Cain the farmer. 
Both brothers understanding at this point, at this very early stage in human history, understanding that the worship of God involves the sacrifice of material wealth. Cain gives to God what he has grown by subjecting the soil. Abel sacrifices to God what he has gained from the Creator by subjecting herds. God is the giver, the brothers are the worshipers. Now God, of course, detects a problem with Cain's gift. We're not going to look into that issue here this morning because of our topic. But suffice it to say that God rebukes Cain and calls him, verses 6 and 7, to do what is right. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Cain, verse 7 If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? What is right is to sacrifice material wealth in worship to God in the right way, with the right heart attitude, in a way that aids the worshiper's relationship to the Lord. Abel did this, Cain did not. And it's a common theme that develops then throughout all of Scripture. To offer the right sacrifice in the right way. We see this very clearly illustrated in Amos 5, way to the end of the Old Testament. More to the beginning of the the Minor Prophets, short books, the end of the Old Testament. Amos chapter 5, notice verse 21. Amos chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, let me stop here and set this up just briefly. Before we get here, we're starting with Abel and his legitimate sacrifice. And we consider then the giving of the law and stipulations about these sacrifices that God wants from His people. All of this history takes place. We come now to this time of the Minor Prophets and we read this about Israelites who are offering the right sacrifice with the wrong heart. What does God say? Does He stand by and just look? No, what does He say? Amos 5 and verse 21, I hate... I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. I don't want anything to do with your worship even though they were doing exactly what God had called them to do. Why is that? Verse 24 makes it clear there was injustice among the people. You treat one another unfairly, unrighteously, unjustly, and then you come to the altar before the priest and you give me one of your lambs. I don't want it. Why? Because God doesn't need lambs. He doesn't need dollars. He doesn't need our things. They're all His. What He wants is our heart. And sacrifice is to guide us to love him with all of our heart. And so he says to the Israelites, I hate your feasts. I hate your sacrifices. Second reason, which we've drawn out clearly here, is the idea of idolatry. Verse 25. Notice the theme of idolatry here, which comprises the reason for which God rejects their sacrifices. Verse 25. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. They're erecting shrines and they're building idols, and that's why they come to the altar 
with a cold heart and offer to God the sacrifices he asked them to offer in a way that did not draw them closer to him. So he says, I hate your sacrifices. Sacrifice is intended to sever the root of idolatry. Israel sacrificed, but also followed other gods. We think of Noah in the flood. Following Abel and his sacrifice, we have Noah in the flood in chapter 8 and verse 20. I'll just summarize it to say there that he offers clean animals to the Lord as the Lord had laid out. We go to Abraham, and since we've been through there, we're skipping some passages. There's so many here. We'll skip Abraham since we've just considered that. But remember back again the defeat of the Eastern Alliance as he went before the priest of Salem, the king of Salem, He predates the law of Moses there as he gives a tenth of the uh, spoil to Melchizedek. As I noted back there a few weeks ago, that was a common practice among the pagans to give 10% of their annual income to their gods. It was a common practice. All did it. Monacutius, the ancient historian, wrote this, Nations have existed that did not offer animal sacrifices, but there is no record of any nation that did not pay tithes to its deity. Now, if we think in creationist terms rather than evolutionary terms, I think we recognize that the reason for that, it's not because it's laid down in the law, but it was communicated by God to His people from a very early date. And even pagans continued the practice of providing or giving a tithe a 10% of their annual income to their gods. In Genesis chapter 22, of course, Abraham demonstrates the ultimate willingness to sacrifice, not a tithe of his income, but his very son. And there is commended by the Lord. We hasten to the law and the tithe that is laid out there. Just a few more passages, if you'll hang with me a little bit longer. Leviticus 27 and verse 30 makes it fairly clear as God lays out this stipulation. We've moved from Abraham and his giving of the tithe. We've moved from the sacrifices of Abel and Noah and the like, a giving of material wealth in the worship of God. We come now to the codification of this practice in the law code given to Moses. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it. That is, if he doesn't want to give that animal, that was the tithe animal, then he can redeem it, but he will give a fifth more. The entire tithe, verse 32, of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. Very careful stipulations. In the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see a little different angle on it, on this idea of tithing. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 14, 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. What's the point of this sacrifice that you would reverence God? What's the point of it? 
This may, in fact, be a second tithe. There's debate about that uh, in addition to the one in Leviticus. But notice verses 27 and following below here in Deuteronomy 14. Verse 27, And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town, so that the Levites who have an allot- no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. But we don't know here if we stack all of these up or if they're different ties. Matter of fact, I don't think it really makes a lot of difference to us in this day. This was a theocracy. And the money that came in went into the worship of God at its center and at its heart. But there is an interesting principle here that God commands this for His people in the Old Covenant economy. And adding to the equation are, is a term referred to as free will offerings. So the Jews would bring these offerings as well, these peace offerings or free will offerings. God encouraged them to offer those above these tithes. And so we see that they were systematically to be laying down wealth in the worship of God. I think the chief example of the real spirit of all of this would have to be Solomon. We won't take the time to turn there now, but in 1 Kings, well, maybe we should. Just 1 Kings chapter 8. Give me a couple more minutes here. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 62. This is an amazing statement. It might be just good to lay your eyes on it. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 62. I think this epitomizes the spirit of worship through material wealth. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Where are they? At the dedication of the temple. The subduing of the earth comes to this hill on Zion and the temple is built and stabilized there or stationed there. It's dedicated by Solomon who in verse 63 offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord. Well, we might expect that. What we read next, I don't think we would ever expect. 22,000 cattle. 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. That's a lot of meat to be burned on one day. And I want to tell you, as rich as Solomon was, that cost him. And when God's people did not follow the spirit of Solomon, the spirit of Abel, God was jealous and he was angry. Malachi chapter 3. We go to the end of the Old Testament. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. We find God's heart on this matter. Malachi 3 and verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you say, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so, that much, so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. God calls His people to consider that they had robbed Him. And how had they robbed Him? 
by not offering the tithes that he had called for into the storehouses. These would have been special rooms on the side of the temple which held tithe to pay for grain in the worship of God. God was adamant about Israel demonstrating her fidelity to him through the tithes. It wasn't only the tithes. We don't have the full picture yet by any means. Of course, this is a very sketchy summary. But I would like you to turn back to one more passage, Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, bound up so closely with the idea of tithe that we cannot know if it's a distinct concept or an identical concept with the tithe, is the theme of first fruits. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. Leviticus 23 and verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come whenever you live. This idea of first fruits we see here very clearly that God was to receive his gift first. So don't eat anything else until you bring that to the Lord. And you wave it before him. I guess they just took a sheaf of grain and waved it in the air. Said this belongs to God. Before they ate any of it, they waved it before him as a first fruits offering. Give to God first, God teaches his people. He called his people to sacrifice to him at the beginning of the harvest. Not to give to God and worship what they could afford at the end of the harvest. To demonstrate fidelity and love for God, to sever the idolatry of wealth, he says, first satiate your desire to honor God, and then use your gifts for the joyful purpose to which God has entrusted them into your hands. Demonstrates fidelity to God, the first fruits. They also demonstrate faith. God will provide the rest of the harvest. So the idea, the principle here is that they gave to God first, and secondly, then they gave to God the best. You notice there in that discussion, there was to be no defect, not the leftover. In the earlier passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there was to be no substituting, giving to God the lamb with the broken leg, keeping the lamb with the good legs for yourself. There was to be none of that. It was to give God what was good. And how ridiculous it would be to hold back from God what was best. It all belongs to him anyway. And the man who brought the crippled or defective lamb, first of all, was to be turned away. But if he brought such a lamb, it showed what was in his heart that he really felt it was all his and he just had to pay his dues to God. It all belongs to him, and so we were to give to him, God's people in the Old Testament economy in particular, were to give to him first, and to give to him what was best, and to trust him for the rest. They were to give in sacrifice. It cost them to worship God. 
We've only scratched the surface of an ocean of references to wealth in the Old Testament. But by God's grace, we will seek to cover the New Testament in one week, next week. But in broad strokes, we should understand from the Old Testament documents at least, I know we've looked a little bit into the New Testament, but primarily here in the Old Testament, God owns everything. Man manages material wealth as God's steward, and God longs to sever the root of idolatry by encouraging man to sacrifice a significant portion of his wealth in the worship of God. So demonstrating their loyalty and faith, God's people were called to start by giving a tenth of their increase and to give the best in worship to God from whom it all came in the first place. And we gain nothing today. Matter of fact, you need to watch your own heart because as I said, as we gather as worship, this is a time of opening and softening your heart. This is also a time in which we can harden our hearts. And you will harden your heart against God this day, I'm convinced. If you do not understand that giving to God was not an isolated matter of financial responsibility for God's people. Sacrifice of material wealth was an integral aspect of the way God's people were called to relate to Him. They were to use material wealth in the ongoing quest to love God with all of their hearts. From cover to cover, we see this truth because God created. We are stewards. And He draws out from among this world people who are His own, who will worship Him with money, not worship money. And it is then through this sacrifice that we read of here that God's people demonstrated that God owns it all. They demonstrated that God came first. They demonstrated that they were stewards of wealth, not owners of it. And they demonstrated that they trusted God for the future. Generation after generation of God's people followed Abel and journeyed to crude local altars and later to the temple of Jerusalem itself and they laid down their personal wealth as an act of homage and honor to God to demonstrate that in their heart God alone was the Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how inadequate are the human words that I have spoken today, but I pray that the Spirit of God would teach and drive home these truths and that you will convict us maybe of the sin of slicing up your Bible, slicing up your word, saying that there's this small little matter over here on the side of what I give to God. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with my life. May we realize, God, that this material universe is yours and that what we do with it has everything to do with our life before you. It has everything to do with our work. It has everything to do with our wealth. It has everything to do with our love and our passion for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to see that in a unique way. None of us stands before you righteous. None of us stands before you saying, I've got it all figured out and I am a model of godliness in this area. 
Lord, we've not even considered this morning really what you have to say to us on this side of the cross. But we are building a sense and gaining a sense, Lord, as we consider this truth that it all belongs to you, how wealth can be used as an avenue of our joy in God rather than as a temptation to idolatry. I pray, Lord, particularly for those of us in a very wealthy land, that we would learn to use this gift of wealth. We'd not write it off, that we'd not think of it as evil, but that we would realize it's a gift from you to be used to your glory and to be used in a way that increases our passion for you and the joy that we experience as your people on this short walk through life as we handle temporary riches, pursuing eternal reward. May we walk in faith as we consider these truths. I pray, dear God, that you'll work a work of righteousness in each of our hearts, wherever we stand, wherever we are. That you'll put your arm around and comfort those who need comfort, that you'll encourage and exhort and challenge and even rebuke those of us who need that. I pray that you'll commend and, Lord, that there be a welling up of joy in the heart now of those who pray who walk in faithful obedience to the best of their knowledge and ability they give to you faithfully. May there be a sense of of joy in your presence now, and may we all pursue that with all of our heart. Lord, we bring these thoughts before you in prayer, and we thank you so much for what you have done through Christ. And as we've remembered his death in the Lord's table this morning, we remember that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Teach us, Lord, to number our days and to apply our hearts to wisdom as we pursue eternal reward. Through Christ I pray, amen.